Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. We'll be in the Gospel of John, chapter 16, verse 1. And even before we begin, it's important, like I always say, to know the context. Where are we coming from? I know we're just jumping into John 16, but what happened before these few chapters so we can kind of set up what's going on? So here we are with Jesus and the disciples. The Passover feast in the upper room has already taken place. The event where he was washing the disciples' feet and speaking to them has taken place. Multiple times he's telling the disciples, hey, I'm going to be leaving. Things are going to happen. Um, And over and over again, the disciples are just really confused. They have no idea what's going on. What is he talking about that he's going to be leaving us? Why does he keep repeating this? Like, we're just really confused. And then John 15, right before this chapter, was him talking about, I am the vine and the branches, right? Uh, To know the Father, you have to know me, and so on and so forth. So a lot of really big things that Jesus is laying out to the disciples right before he knows he's going to go. But the disciples really don't have the full idea of what's coming up next. So here we are, John 16, verse 1. These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble... They will put you out of the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think that he offers God service. And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. And interestingly enough, we see this even in our day, right? Um, We can go back to the Bible and see an example of this very clearly. Paul, the apostle, was one of the greatest figures in the Bible. Um, But before he was Paul, he did some pretty terrible things. If you remember Stephen, the the first person who got stoned, the first martyr, Paul was there cheering on the other people in the synagogue saying, yes, let's stone him, let's get rid of him, I'll hold your coats. And he thought he was doing God's service, carrying out God's plan by killing these Christians, these heretical people. So we see that happening in the past. We see that happening now, don't we? Uh, if it's not hard for me to say, do you know of any religion out there that's claiming to operate on God's will, doing God's service by killing everybody else who could be either a heretic or an infidel? Like, that's not hard for me to point out. The Muslims, some of them, very much believe that they are doing God's work by killing others. But just like the, the Jews in the Old Testament, just like the Muslims now, we see here in verse 3 that it says, these things they will do to you, because they have not known the Father nor me. And that's an important point that it brings up, because there's two people that didn't know. Yeah, they didn't know Jesus, obviously. They thought he was a a heretical person. But more importantly, they thought they were doing God's work, but they did not even know the Father. So here we have these people thinking they're doing God's work, but they really don't even know who God is. And the question is, well, how would you know who God is then? A lot of people claim that, yeah, I know him. Uh, I go to synagogue. I go, I go to church every Sunday. I can say I know the president. I know a lot of the things he does. I see what he does every day. I know what he says every day on TV. But do I really know him? So the difference is I can know about someone, but unless I have a relationship with that person, then I don't really know who that person is. And the same thing applies with God. These people knew about God. They had the Old Testament, the prophets, the, the law. They knew about God, but they had no relationship with him. So back to verse 4. But these things I have told you, that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. 
And we often see Jesus talking about, remember, you know, remember this, don't forget that. In the, uh, the supper, and whenever we have communion, the, the four words are what? Do this in remembrance of me. Or I guess that's five. But do this in remembrance of me. And if you look at the Greek, like we said, the word for remember in that point is the opposite of amnesia. So amnesia is when you just forget everything. But Jesus said, don't forget about this. Don't forget about me. Don't forget about my sacrifice. Here we say, he says that I'm telling you these things so that you remember. It's not the same word. It's a little different. The word here for remember in the Greek is um, similar to the word for mnemonic. And what is a mnemonic? It's something that you easily remember because it's just a very interesting mix of words or something. And you remember what it means. So Jesus is repeating to the disciples over and over again, I'm telling you these things so you don't forget. I'm telling you these things so you don't forget. You're going to see it happen. Just don't forget. And over and over again, we see the disciples who are just normal people, right? They're not, you know, fancy pants scientists. They're not the magi from, you know, far away who have studied books for 20, 30 years. These guys are fishermen. These guys are just, you know, tax collectors, just normal people. And Jesus is telling these things, but it's not making sense just yet. But Jesus is like, don't worry. It'll make sense soon. So verse 4 that you remember them when I told you of them. And these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. So we got to step into the shoes of the disciples to really understand what he's getting at here. These guys grew up in the church, for them, which was a synagogue, for all their life. They have buddies in the church. They, they you know, did fun things together. They worked together. They had fun on the weekends together, whatnot. And here Jesus is saying to you, these guys who you went to church with all your life, they're going to put you out of the synagogues. They're going to kick you out of your church. Some of them are going to kill you in God's name, thinking that they're doing God's, God's service. So here, if you're a disciple hearing Jesus saying that your lifelong buddy friends from church are going to do this to you, and you're hearing that Jesus, who has been with you for three years, doing all these miracles, all these great things, and you feel so great with them, he's saying that he's going to leave you for no reason. You don't understand what's going on. It could be very terrifying. Very terrifying, because he's been their comfort, he's been their shield, he's the whole reason that they felt safe going out to the world. The example that I think of is, I mean, and I can't say particularly, but if there's a, a parent who has a child, and I know school just started, but I don't know if anybody took their kids to daycare for the first time or to uh, kindergarten, the time of life that that is is very uh, scary for abandonment issues in the kids, right? They have no idea why my parents leaving me. They're not, they don't care that you have to go to work, that you have to make money and support the way that the lifestyle is. All they know is that you are leaving me. Why are you doing to this me as a child? Why are you abandoning me? And the disciples felt the same way. You just told me my friends are going to hate me. They're going to kill me, and here you are going to leave me. They're terrified. If I were in their shoes, I would be absolutely terrified too. And that's what we got to understand. So when it says here, Jesus is saying, and these things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you, that makes perfect sense. Like, you're not going to tell a 5-year-old, a 7-year-old, or a 12-year-old the terrible things that happen in the world. That can happen in the world. It's not a guarantee. But there are terrible things out there. But what's the point telling kids these things when you're there to protect them? You're there with, you're there with them. Jesus is telling these things to them now and saying, I didn't tell you earlier because I was with you. But he knows soon that he's not going to be with them anymore. So I have to prepare you. If your kid's going to college or if somebody's getting married and moving away to a different area, 
you got to let out these life truths and say, hey, man, the world is going to be unfair. you got to understand that I know we raise things up great in this household, but it's going to be very different. There are going to be troubles out in the world. And he's telling the disciples the same thing. I'm not going to be with you always physically. And they don't see that just yet. Verse 5. But now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. And this is kind of confusing because we don't have any text in this chapter of of, uh, disciples saying, where are you going, what's going on? But if you go back to two chapters ago in John 14, Jesus is over and over again saying, I'm going to a place where you can't follow me. I'm going to a place where... uh, I'll come back to you in a little while. And all these weird figurative like speeches, and they just don't understand what's going. And he raises the point up here where it says, um, but now I go away to him who sent me, but none of you even bothered to ask, where are you going? You just started getting sad, which is an interesting thing. If somebody told me in this next verse here, um, where it says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. If you follow that up with the statement saying that, hey, I'm going away, um, but to where this place I go, you can't come. I'll come back to you in a little bit. Like, it's just getting really confusing. Like, Jesus, what are you talking about? I don't know where you're going. In chapter 14, there's actually one of the apostles who says, Jesus, like, we don't know where you're going, and we have no idea how to get there. So how do you expect us to even follow? And that's the correct response. If I told you, hey, guys, um, I'm going somewhere. You know where I'll be, and um, uh, you know how to get there. That means nothing. Like, you guys literally have no idea where I'm going. You, if you don't know where I'm going, you know how to get there. But there's two appropriate responses for that. The first would be, well, okay, where are you going? Or the second one is just to be hopeless and be like, I have no idea where you're going, so how would I know how to get there? In this situation, of those two possible responses, we see the apostles saying, I don't know where you're going, and I don't know how to get there, and now everybody's sad that Jesus is leaving. And Jesus points that out, saying, nobody bothered to ask where you're going. And he realizes this, and that's why he follows it up with uh, this talk of the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that go away. For if I do not go away... The helper will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. Verse 8. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. In the world of medicine, there's always times where you, in my opinion, almost 95, 99% of the time, you don't speak medical terms. It just doesn't make sense. Um, if I use, you know, words like hyperplasia, your heart is ectopic, like these, it doesn't make sense. I'm learning a new language that not everybody understands, so why would I speak in that word? In the same way, church people have their own language, and they can say it to others, and they may not necessarily understand. So when I see words like sin, we know what that means. And if, if you say, like, okay, what does it really mean? How can I explain that to someone? You've heard the example of, like, oh, it's missing the mark. And true, in the Hebrew, they would use javelins or darts and bows and arrows. And if you missed the bullseye, then that was a sin. 
in Greek, the word that they use for sin is a uh, hamartia, which there's actually a word in medicine that's like that. So if in Greek, sin equals hamartia, in medicine, hamartia is a type of tumor. But it's an interesting one because this type of tumor grows in, in the spot where you wouldn't really... Um, you think tumor, it's like, oh, there's something bad growing in a wrong spot. But if there was a hamartia in your brain, it would look like brain. If you looked at it under a microscope, it would have the correct uh, architecture of what brain cells should look like. But there's just something off about it. It grows in a really un, uncharacteristic way in that it looks like brain, but it's kind of messy. There's just something off that you could tell about it. And clearly, if you give it enough time, it will grow into a type of tumor. And I can tell you that there's most cultures in the world. It's not hard for me to explain. Like, yeah, if you murder someone, anybody could tell that that's a sin. It's a very black and white situation, right? But sin can be sneaky too, right? I mean, the very first situation we have in, in the book of Genesis is sin being introduced with half-truths, kind of deceptive, like a hamartoma, right? It looks like it's in the right place. It kind of makes sense that it looks like brain tissue, but there's something off about it. It's just deceptive, and sin in this way is deceptive. So to explain to someone, oh, you know, there's sin... Uh, the Holy Spirit's going to convict the world of it. There's righteousness. Let's break these words down and kind of understand it. The word convict um, can be also understood as convince. So if I'm going to convict you of sin, or if the Holy Spirit is going to convict you of sin, it basically is saying he's going to convince you that there's sin. Here we have Jesus saying that the Holy Spirit's going to give three main tasks, or the Holy Spirit has three tasks to do the world. And the first one is to convict the world of sin. The second is to convince the world of righteousness. And the third is to convince the world of judgment. And he says in the following verse, number nine, of sin because they do not believe in me. And this was interesting to me because I never really thought of, like when you think of sins, there's like, yes, there's the Ten Commandments. There's probably a ton of other things that are sins. But what he's saying here is that the sin really is not believing in Jesus. So you could do a ton of other sins and they're you know, wrong or deceptive or whatnot, but the real sin is that you didn't believe in Jesus in the end. Because even when we get saved, right, we, we, are, we are saved, but that doesn't mean that you're no longer a sinner, and that's a key point. We're still sinners right now. Me standing up here, me in my everyday life, we're still sinners. The thing is, we've been saved from the judgment that we eventually will receive. So he has to convince, the Holy Spirit has to convince the world, yeah, yes, there is sin. It looks like it's okay, but it's not. The next verse, he has to convince of uh, righteousness. All the disciples were terrified that Jesus was leaving, but he kept saying, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. He's going to be your comforter. He's going to be your helper. He's going to be there for your aid. So this second goal is just to convince the believers in the world, like, hey, you guys are doing the right thing. You're going to see things that are supernatural. You're going to see things that are great, that don't make sense. But let this be like confirmation that you guys are on the right path. So convince the world that, yes, there is sin. Convince the believers that you guys are doing the right, the right thing. Just keep on that path. And the third one is to convince the world of judgment. And it says, well, who is he going to judge? 
um, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. And we see that a lot that he's been saying in this book. Who is the ruler of the world? It's, it's Satan. He's the one who's been giving authority over us. But Jesus is saying, I'm going to convince the world that there's sin. I'm going to convince the believers that you guys are on the right path. It's okay. Don't be afraid that I'm physically leaving. And I'm going to convince you that even though Satan is here, he's already been judged. So don't worry about that. Um, I've already taken care of the end game, but realize judgment is coming. Verse 9. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Verse 10. Of righteousness, because I go to the Father and you see me no more. Verse 11. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. And again, going back to the shoes of the disciple, they've had a very rough time. He, they were just told their friends are going to kick him out of synagogues, kill them in God's name. Jesus, you're leaving us. How could you do this to us? And Jesus is saying, I have so much more to tell you guys, but you can't take it right now. It's already too much. And this is a very understandable example. Like when, when you're in the hospital and there's a, a patient there before you, they don't really know what's going on. They, they fear the worst. They're hoping that things could be well. But when you have not the greatest news to tell them, that there is a cancer or that there is no more treatment possible, um, when you tell that to a patient, you'll get many reactions. But what we are taught is that the initial reaction is shocking. And it should be. It's not good news you want to hear. But whatever you say after those first few words is, is a blur. Like, they, you could see it on their face. They just, they're not paying attention to what you're saying. Jesus was saying these, these things to them, and it was a blur from that point on. He knew that if he kept talking, they wouldn't get it. They wouldn't listen because they're already shocked as it is. Just like we're taught that if I told someone it's cancer, me talking about different treatment plans immediately, me talking about this and that, and we're going to get social services and blah, 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 they don't care. They can't bear it. They're still processing the first few words I said. Jesus had that foresight and said, look, I, there's so much more we need to talk about. Plans that we need to do. You know, the things that you're going to face. The, the good and the bad. But right now is just the wrong time to talk about it. And that's why he says, so many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them right now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will speak... He, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. That entire paragraph of what I'm going to give to you, what I have is the Father's, what the Holy Spirit takes is coming from me, is, is to me just showing that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all equal. It's, it's, that's the whole idea of a trinity, right? What is mine is yours. What is yours is mine. That's like what a marriage is, or, um, that we are equal parts. Yes, we're different, but we share everything. And this is just an important doctrine to know. Um, and for those who are math inclined, like for me, growing up through school, I always remember if A equals B and B equals C, then clearly A also equals C. And in this case, if God equals Jesus and Jesus equals the Holy Spirit, then God the Father also equals the Holy Spirit. So the point is they're all equal. 
in, in uh, three different persons. Moving on to verse 16 here. A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me, because I go to the Father. Then some of his disciples said among themselves, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. They said, therefore, what is this that he says? A little while. We do not know what he is saying. And this isn't the first time we saw this. In the chapters before, it's the same thing. Jesus kept saying things. I'm going to be leaving. I'll be back, but I'll come with you. I'm going to a place where my father has many mansions, and I'm going to prepare a place for you, and then I'll come back to get you. But these guys, again, do not have the luxury that we have. Here we are in 2017. We have tons of people who studied the Bible, and we know the whole story. These guys don't even know that the Holy Spirit existed at this point. They were just told that their buddies are going to be kicking them out of church, and all these terrible things are happening. And to them, whenever Jesus says, I'm going to my father, they are probably thinking, your father has mansions in Nazareth? Like, that makes absolutely no sense. What are you talking about? You keep talking about these weird places you're going to go and build a place and come back. They're absolutely confused. And when you see that they're talking among themselves, 17 and 18, those verses, literally everything that Jesus said, they were confused and says, we do not know what he has seen. Basically, confusion across the board for everything that Jesus is saying. And it says here in uh, the next verse, Now Jesus knew that they desired to ask him. uh, And he said, Are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said? A little while and you will not see me, and and again a little while and you will see me. And this is a, a very easy thing. Like, Have you ever seen someone who is not talking about a thing, but you know what they're thinking? Uh, if you're in my situation, I'll give you an example where I was in the, the bottom floors of St. Mary's Hospital because the surgical suites are one above the main floor. I'm new to that area. I have no idea what's going on over there. Everybody's wearing fancy hats, and they got these masks. So all you see are just these eyes just, like, peering at you. And they, they know exactly where they're going. They're walking to OR 501 and whatnot. Um, but I just want to get some food, and I just stepped out of the OR, and I look completely lost. You could see me looking around at looking at the, uh, the signs and the doors. But the point is, everybody is looking at me, and they know what I'm thinking. Or I guess, more importantly, what, I have, uh, what I'm not thinking. And just as Jesus is watching his disciples here, they're all bickering and like, what is he talking about? We're really confused. I don't know what he's talking about. It's the same as uh, my situation in the hospital where I was just standing there sheepishly looking around, having no idea where to go, but people knew what I was thinking. And thankfully, there was one nurse who came up to me and just asked, okay, what are you looking for? And let's get you there. So I can, I can see the situation here. But Jesus, uh, it's not hard for him to tell what's going on. So he's saying... You guys are wondering what I'm talking about. I could see it all over your face. Um, and they said that they were very confused. So, verse 20. Most assuredly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. I was really, 
I, I've been, I'm doing my, my surgery clerkship right now, so this is uh, probably old news to you guys, but I haven't seen a baby been born before, and I spent one day in, in, the, in the birthing area and saw it for the first time, and I realized, wow, this is actually the first time I saw it with my own eyes. Uh, unfortunately, it wasn't um, a normal birth in the sense that it was a C-section, so I was in the operating room. So there, there wasn't this situation. Like, I read this, and I imagine the movies were, you know, screaming in pain, and it's terrible. But in the OR, there was just plenty of drugs, and she was smiling the whole time, which is a very false uh, <laughs> representation of what I imagine uh, it should be. But I get the idea, uh, and I was looking at her face and the husband's face throughout this entire procedure, and, and there's nervousness. So the way that, you know, epidurals and spinals work when they, when they give the medication so you don't feel pain, the way that it works is that uh, it targets specific nerves. So I can block your pain nerves, and that will also block the, the way you tell temperature. But that's the only two things it does. What it doesn't do is block the feeling of pressure. So these women who have this type of medication, they will still feel pressure, and that's good because you still want some kind of feedback of like, should I push more, should I not? Um, or for a C-section, they need to know that there's at least something going on um, during the surgery. But you can tell when I was looking at her face as she was going through the surgery, she can feel pressure. She can feel the surgeons operating. She can feel them literally tugging. It's not a nice, beautiful process when they do a C-section. Uh, I don't want to get too detailed, but it's not the, the most pleasant. But they can feel some pressure, and you can tell she's nervous, and rightfully so. It's her first kid. She doesn't really know what's going on. In all the movies and whatnot, when a baby's born, and the way I imagine it, I guess, uh, you hear the cry, and you know things are okay. If you don't hear the cry, that's worrisome in my mind. Like, why isn't baby crying? What's going on? Uh, Luckily for her, there's a huge curtain that's blocking everything, so she doesn't have to see any of that. But when the baby is born or through a C-section, it's completely gray. It's not crying yet at all. And I don't have to surprise anybody, but it's pretty uh, slimy and pretty messy. What surprised me was that how long it took before it actually got better. It was a good five minutes of time before they took him to the back, started cleaning him, and started doing painful things to the baby just try to elicit it to like hey you should start breathing now it's a good idea and and uh give that strong cry off um but you can see the anxiety in the mom's face and i can imagine during a, a natural labor back in the day before they had any of these medications um her hour has come that just sounds ominous she knows it's terrible but when the baby starts crying, when the baby's in her hands, all the anguish, all the sorrow is gone, and it's really turned into joy. And this is the idea that almost every culture has, and this is the idea that God's telling directly to the disciples. It's going to be bad. You guys are going to lament. You're going to be sorrowful. But trust me that there's going to be a time where joy will come in and pretty much erase all that you've just experienced. So that's verse 21. In 22, therefore, you now have sorrow because of all the things he just told them. But I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. 23, and in that day, you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, 
Whatever you ask in the Father, in my name he will give you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be made full. So in in this uh, version of the Bible, the New King James Version, when it says most assuredly, if you go back to other versions of the Bible, this is where you would see like truly, truly I say to you, or truly Peter this, or truly that. The Greek word for truly is amen, or uh, if you pronounce it correctly like the Greeks, it's amin, which is how the people in those languages would say it. So whenever you hear someone saying amen in church, amen at the end of a prayer, it's basically, yes, we've heard so be it, or I agree, that's true. And here we have the first mention of uh, why we pray the way we pray, right? Whenever we pray, I was just thinking about this last night, we end it saying, and in Jesus' name I pray, amen. So this is the reason for that. Uh, In that day, you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, truly, what I'm telling to you is super true. I say to you, Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give to you. Which sounds like a pretty awesome deal for us. As long as I end every prayer with Jesus' name uh, and end it with an amen or truly, it's done. Right? That sounds like it's too good to be true. But of course we know it's not a blanket statement, so you could do whatever you want. God, I really want a brand new car uh, in Jesus' name. uh, Amen. So clearly it's true. And if I get other people to agree with me and say amen also... You know, I'll see my car in a week. Like, obviously not. It has to be in line with God's will. It has to be in line with God's will. And this brings me to an important thing that I mentioned before, but it's, it always has to be reminded. Um, we're going to pray for tons of things. Here at Mayo Clinic, it revolves a lot around medicine. And, and no matter where you are, I'm, I'm from California, you know, Cancers happen all over there, no matter where you are, bad things, accidents. Back home, um, being raised in church, my dad also did get cancer. And we were, you know, churchgoers, and we go to the church every Sunday, and we loved it and whatnot. But there are always going to be people who say this here. Oh, pray in Jesus' name. Say amen. If you have enough faith, it'll happen as if it's your decision to make it happen. And when it doesn't happen, clearly you lacked faith. You did something wrong for this to happen. Now, that's obviously not true, and I'm just going to provide a few examples to back that up. Whenever whenever I like to point a truth out or whatever, I like to back it up with examples from the Bible, so here we go. Paul was a very important person in the Bible. He pretty much wrote the New Testament definitions of what faith can be. So if you're telling me that I am praying for my illness, for my dad's cancer, and it depends on my faith whether or not he gets healed, did not Paul have an eye problem? Didn't he say in multiple different books of the Bible, like, dude, I, sorry, um, I prayed over and over again. Look how big these letters are that I'm writing you with. I can't see that well. I prayed, guys. He knows what faith is. He, he believed, but it never did get healed. It's God's will what happens, not your, your faith, as if it could override what his plan is for the entire world and your place in it. He had faith. He prayed multiple times, and it was, uh, the answer was no. And that's the answer that we'll see. It's either yes, no, or, or wait. Taking it a step further for somebody who's like, all right, well, Paul's still human. Um, he didn't have enough faith, which is, I'm just like, I don't know where your logic is coming from. 
but let's go to Jesus, who is now the pinnacle of our faith. He's somebody we can't top, right? He knew what was coming. He knew the crucifixion was coming, excruciating pain, right? Excruciating pain. He's going to be sent down. He's going to be tortured, terrible things. Can you really, really argue to me that he did not have enough faith? He prayed to God the Father, Lord, is there another way? You can't tell me that he did not have enough faith. But he still prayed about it. He still prayed to God saying, God, is there another way? But what happened immediately after he asked? But not my will be done, but yours. That's the key. We can pray. We should pray. We can hope. I mean, that's what, that's what Paul said, right, in, in Hebrews. What, what is faith? Faith is the evidence. Um, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So we can say, all right, well, faith is hope. Um, so I can hope that my illness gets away. I can hope that my cancer gets cured. But let's look into the definition of hope, right? Because I, I really hope that I was going to win the lottery like a few weeks ago. But what is hope, right? The definition of hope, when you look it up in, in a, any common dictionary, it's two things. It's expectation and desire. I desired so much for that lottery. Did I really expect it, though? With those ridiculous odds, no, I didn't. So truly, I can't say I hoped to win the lottery. So then you can't say you had faith that you were in the lottery. Expectation and desire. I desired for the lottery, but I'm not going to get it. Another one. Here's a, I'm speeding down the 52, and a cop pulls up behind me. I expect that I'm going to get a ticket but I can guarantee you that I had zero desire for it. Therefore, I had no hope for the ticket. Faith equals hope, but hope is expectation and desire. And we just got to remember, people always say, you lack faith. Remember that Jesus, Paul, these people did not lack faith. We know the examples. We can fight back at them. It's not how you say it is. Don't ever feel otherwise. Like, feel very strong about this point in in whatever you face, Um, because my family went through the same thing. And expectation and desire, uh, hope does not equal faith in the sense that people always think hope is uh, as long as you wishfully think it. That's not the same thing. <clears throat> so we know we can always uh, go back to the Bible for those good examples to prove it's not what they say. Verse 23. So here we go, wrapping it again. We know where the, the reason why we ended in Jesus' name. We know what amen means, and we know the difference between hope and uh, desire, expectation, and faith. So moving on to verse 26 here. These things I have spoken to you in figurative language, but the time is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figurative language, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name just like I taught you. And I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. Again, I leave the world and go to the Father. And this is the first time we see him speaking plainly. Before, it was of mansions and I'm going away, but I'll be back in a little while. Then I'll take you with me. But the place where I'm going, you know where it's at, and you know how to get there. Just like very figurative, all these parables, you think that uh, he's trying to explain it to them. But over and over again, even though the disciples saw the feeding of the 5,000, they saw the waters being calmed, they did, 
maybe in their mind they just didn't equate Jesus as God just yet. In their mind, they're still confused. And even whenever they did get truths, like when Peter was like, when Jesus said, oh, who did the disciples or who did the people say that I am? And Peter's like, oh, you're the son of God. Jesus was like, that's awesome that you said that, Peter. But it was God who gave you that information. It wasn't you who just figured it out by yourself. The point is the disciples are afraid. They're confused. This figurative language isn't really making sense in their situation for the time. But here we have God saying, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. And again, I'm going to leave the world and go back to the Father. That's as plain as it comes. He's literally leaving the world. You can't confuse that word to mean something else. And in 29, we see that. His disciples said to him, See, now you are speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you come forth from God. It's like, have you not seen all the miracles for the past three years? Have you not seen what I've been doing? Is this really the the key point that convinces you of it, that I could talk plainly? And in verse 31, Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Indeed, the hour is coming. Yes, has now come that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. And in my mind, when I was reading this, it's an important um, way to see that Jesus was God completely, yes, but he's also a human. And earlier in the chapter, we saw the disciples as a group of people saying, Jesus, you're leaving us? How, how can you tell us that these terrible things are going to happen and you're going to leave us? Now we're terrified and we're very sorrowful, full of lament. And here Jesus is flipping it. He's like, you guys are going to be leaving me soon. But unlike the disciples who were just fearful, full of sorrow... Jesus said here, you all will leave me alone, and yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. So here's the difference. Whereas the disciples were terrified that they were being left alone, whereas a kid at daycare is being crying their eyes out because mom or dad's leaving me, Jesus is providing the ultimate example. Whenever you feel like you're being left alone, whenever you feel abandoned or things are not going your way, the world is turning against you, medical problems are facing you, your friends are abandoning you and doing terrible things behind your back. When all these tribulations are happening, remember the example that Jesus did. He knew that the Father was with him, so he truly was not alone, even though those around him left him. And in verse 33, it says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world, which is as warm and fuzzy a way to end this chapter, this situation where he's talking with the disciples, and to make it even more powerful. We know what tribulation is. Houston's facing tribulation. We know that Florida will face tribulation. All the Bahamas, that's tribulation. But we have tribulation in our own lives. There are illnesses, there are money problems, there are problems with relationships. These are our tribulations, and they're very real to us. I can tell you a billion things that are wrong with the world, of how many you know, cases of malaria are killing children, of blah, 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 this in China. Like, Yeah, that's great, but in my life, what matters is what I'm going through, and, and that's tribulation. But Jesus saying, be of good cheer, and that word in the Greek, it's, it's even better than just be of good cheer. The word is uh, like theros, which has, it can mean two things. One of them is summer or, or warmth. So literally he's saying, 
be comforted, which I think to a, telling, me telling a Minnesotan to be warm when they know what winter really is, there you go. Like, be comforted, be warm, be of good cheer. The second meaning for this word, other than summer or warmth, is be bold. Take courage. Like, be strong. So Jesus is saying one word to these guys. You're going to face tribulations. You're going to have cancer. Your family members are going to abandon you. Your friends are going to do terrible things to you. You're going to have tribulations here in Rochester. You're going to have tribulations in your own life. But be warm. Remember, remember the feelings of summer. Know that I'm comforting you. Know that I'm with you. And more than that, take courage. Be strong and be bold. Because I have overcome the world. So any tribulations possible that you are facing, we know he already has faced it himself. And he overcame those problems. So the problem is solved. Even though in our time point here on you know, September 10th, 2017, it doesn't seem like much is solved. When I look at some patients in the hospital um, and I can't, they can't bear to hear more than what I just told them, it doesn't seem like the problem is solved. It, it doesn't seem like the answer has been given. And sometimes there are no more answers to give. And it seems like even medicine at this point is abandoning me. Like, what hope is there? But the point is, God's will is the final answer. He has overcome the world. So even when you are in your own personal tribulations, remember the warmth, remember the summer, be comforted, and then beyond that, be bold and and take courage. This was a super exciting chapter for me to go through. and I know, I don't know, I like going into the Greek and getting different things, but there's, there's a lot to take from it that I think we can apply to this uh, daily life of our own. And I really hope you guys got some good nuggets out of it. Um, I'm going to go ahead and pray in a bit, and as we return to the music and after church, we're going to have somebody in the back corner uh, ready. Don't feel obligated to go, but if you feel like you want somebody just to pray with you, to say amen with you and to find out what God's will is with you. We'll have someone back there to pray with you. And, uh, and just reflect on these things. Remember, it, it, there's a reason why Jesus said, remember, remember this. Have a mnemonic for this. Don't have amnesia about these topics. Like, remind yourself constantly about it. Um, you're not alone. He said that he will be with us even unto the end of the age. He will never leave us nor forsake us. That's the bottom line amidst our tribulation. So let's go ahead and pray. Lord, thank you for these promises that you give us. And and they're not new to us. You've been promising the Israelites thousands of years ago that you would not leave them, you would not forsake them. You would always be with them. Even when the world was against them. Even when the trouble seemed to be coming from every direction, that there was no hope, there is no answer. And thank you for understanding that we can be afraid. We can feel lost, like a child at daycare feeling abandoned, or like the disciples thinking that you're leaving us forever and how can you do this. But thank you for the Holy Spirit that you sent to be our helper, to be the advocate at our side, someone who was called to aid us. Help us remember that we have a church and a church family here who can help us through any troubles that we have and can be with us when we're in the good and can rejoice and be full of joy. Remind us that it is your will 
that we must ultimately seek to accomplish. And even though we don't understand it, we, we love you that we know you're in control and that you are not abandoning us or leaving us. Thank you for helping us learn new things and apply these things in our daily life. And ultimately, thank you for teaching us how to pray about these things. And I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. And I say amen to that.